Um, we're going to be looking at Psalm 106 today, so you can begin to head there if you have a, a Bible or an electronic device. It's a long psalm. It's actually uh, kind of part two of, a, 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 well, they're complementary psalms. Psalm 105 and Psalm 106 are part one and part two of uh, the psalmist recounting Israel's journey. It's kind of like a really brief summation of the Old Testament story when Israel finds itself in Egypt all the way until probably a little bit before uh, the period of kings. So like a uh, period of judges when they first come into the land and, and Joshua, they overtake the land and then um, um, judges, they cycle through a bunch of judges or leaders. So uh, Psalm 105 and 106 kind of move through that. That's kind of the context for 106. But what these Psalms are specifically doing is highlighting Israel's unfaithfulness during that time to God, even though God is this delivering God who, uh, under no obligation, chose this group of people who weren't even a nation. They were just a, a, a huge collection of slaves and says, I'm going to turn you into a people. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to remove you from Egypt. I'm going to uh, give you my law. I'm going to teach you how to be God's people so that you can be a light. So he takes these nobody slaves and uh, moves them through this long, winding road journey. But the Psalms are really saying a lot of the reason why this journey was long and winding road was because Israel so much of the time resisted and was stubborn and fell into all kinds of um, self-destructive patterns where they resisted God and thought that they knew better. And so at different times in the journey, kind of said, thanks God for taking us here, but we can... We can, we can progress from here on our own. Thanks very much. Thanks for kind of the help up, and, and we'll take it from here. So Psalms uh, 106 kind of continues in that. I'm going to read the whole thing. It is a little long, uh, but again, if you have trouble uh, paying attention, just try and picture the things in your mind, or you can read along or follow along. I, I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to read through it, and then I'm going to be talking about one of the patterns that I see in here that is imminently practical and challenging for us today. So Psalm 106. Praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Who can proclaim the mighty acts of the Lord or fully declare his praise? Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people. Come to my aid when you save them, that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. We have sinned. Even as our ancestors did, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They didn't remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, from the hand of the enemy. He redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them survived. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise, but they soon forgot what he had done and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert, they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they grew envious of Moses and of Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It buried the company of Abiram. Fire blazed among their followers. A flame consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull, which eats grass. 
They forgot that God, they forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the lands of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And so he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents. They didn't obey the Lord. So he swore to them with an uplifted hand that he would make them fall in the wilderness, make their descendants fall among the nations, and scatter them throughout the lands. They yoked themselves to the ball of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They aroused the Lord's anchor by their wicked deeds, and a plague broke out among them. But Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was checked, and this was credited to him as righteousness for endless generations to come. By the waters of Meribah they angered the Lord, and trouble came to Moses because of them, for they rebelled against the Spirit of God, and rash words came from Moses' lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations, they adopted their customs, they worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. And therefore, the Lord was angry with them, with his people, and abhorred his inheritance. He gave them into the hands of the nations and their foes ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and subjected them to their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were bent on rebellion, and they wasted away in their sin. And yet he took note of their distress when he heard their cry. And for their sake he remembered his covenant, and out of his great love he relented. He caused all who held them captive to show them mercy, Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and and glory in your praise. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So as you can see, this is kind of a good news, bad news psalm. The the good news of it is that God is just constantly faithful. The bad news is, is that he's had to be constantly faithful because Israel has constantly been mucking things up, resisting, ignoring, dismissing, minimizing, being disobedient, despite God constantly intervening and constantly delivering and constantly being patient. So I'm not going to teach through all the psalm today, but I want to highlight and unpack one of the themes that this psalm puts before us as one of the major pitfalls in Israel's journey, which I hope we'll then see is is a huge pitfall in all of our journeys. And that is Israel's struggle with idolatry. I want to talk about Israel's struggle with idolatry. And I want to focus uh, primarily on on, on these verses where it talks about the fact that Israel worshipped the gods of the Canaanites and they became a snare to them. And eventually what happens is Israel, not all of Israel, but some of Israel, begins actually participating in child sacrifice. Um, in order to procure the favor of these gods. They drifted, their idolatry got a hold of them so much that they began sacrificing their own children, um, which God had said throughout the biblical story. The story of Adam, or Abraham asking, God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac is an implicitly anti-child sacrifice story because in that time, if a God asks you to sacrifice a child, every culture around says, 
okay, that's what gods do. So when God says, Abraham, sacrifice your son, Abraham's about to go through with it, through with it and God says, no, I'll provide a, a substitutionary sacrifice. That every Jewish person has always understood that text to be God saying, child sacrifice does not please me at all. That is not the way to procure my favor. In fact, you will procure my wrath if you're to participate because I am not like the gods of the other nations. Now, idolatry, likely, I mean, I'm kind of assuming depending on, on the circles that you swim in, is not a word or a concept that comes up may, maybe very often in your consciousness or, or how you talk about your faith or a, a dynamic within your faith. It wasn't for me until maybe five or six years ago when this word began cropping up in different contexts that I was reading and thinking through and people that I was journeying with. If you ask the average person what they think of idolatry, they probably have a kind of a caricature view of, of a little idol, a little statue in the home that maybe um, primitive pre-scientific societies were to worship, you know, maybe a, a, a harvest idol or a water idol and you, and you give certain sacrifices, you pray, you, you do certain penance so that that little idol, that God will give you the blessing of whatever sphere of nature it's over. If you need a harvest, if you're experiencing a drought. Um, and that certainly is an expression of idolatry. That's one way to think about idolatry. But the Bible talks about idolatry in a much bigger, in a much more complex way, in a much more helpful way, but also a much more convicting way because it's a way of talking about idolatry that I think should cut to all of our hearts. So I want to look at three questions today. I want to look at what is an idol, how do idols snare us, and how do we get free? What's an idol? How do they snare us? That's strange language, strong language in the text. And how do we get free? Okay, let me start by talking about what an idol is. Uh, an idol, uh, my definition would be, an idol is whatever you enthrone as God in your life. That thing or that person which you say, this is the ultimate center of my devotion. And I don't mean like beliefs as like ideas. I mean devotion. I mean full body, this is what I'm living for. This is what I'm living towards. This is what I want to please. This is what I want to attain. And there's lots of things that we're moving towards in life, and there's lots of things that we want to attain. And all of our lives have different uh, levels of priorities in our life. But the idol is that which is the bottom line priority. It's the thing that if you have to come up against something else, that something else is going to give way to the idol. An idol, usually by definition, is something that we do not feel we can live without. One commentator said this, an idol is anything that's more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart or imagination more than God, anything that seeks to give you what only God can give you. And so an idol is a counterfeit God. It's literally a false God. Um, but it's something that is so essential to your way of living that if you were to play a thought experiment with it and say, if I were to not have this, your emotional reaction would be, I don't know if I'd want to live anymore then. I wouldn't know how to define myself. If I woke up on Monday morning and this wasn't accessible to me, if, if this was no longer in my life, if the possibility for this was no longer in my life, I, I honestly wouldn't know what to do with myself. I wouldn't know how to structure my life because I've structured my life in terms of time, energy, money, imagination, creativity around 
something, and it's this thing. So it's the thing that becomes the fundamental reality in your life, the fundamental God through which you achieve, you are trying to achieve happiness, you're trying to extract meaning, fulfillment, your identity. That's what the Bible means when it talks about an idol. And idols are often things that we devote ourselves to because either they promise explicitly or implicitly power, protection, or control over the world. Those are kind of three things that an idol whispers to us and says, these are, I can give you these things. You just need to bow down and worship me. That's all I ask. I'll give you these things. You just bow down and worship me. And so idolatry isn't just a failure to obey God. Idolatry is deeper than that because idolatry is actually saying, I'm going to dethrone God. God's going to become one of my priorities, of course, but something else or someone else's king. And that's different than disobedience in the strictest sense because that's the fundamental reality that underlies all disobedience. The reason why any of us disobey is because there's an idol speaking to our hearts in that moment that says, don't do what God says, go this way and trust me or trust yourself and things will go well for you. So it's even more, it's kind of like the sin, it's the, it's the root sin underneath all the other sin. You want to deal with sin in your life, and this is why I wanted to talk about this today, it's, it's often not super helpful to deal with the superficial behavioral patterns of your sin. The better thing to do is to try and ask, what idol am I serving that is giving rise to this in my life? Henry David Thoreau said, there are many people hacking at the leaves of evil, but very few hacking at the root. And if we look at the bad behavior that we do, the sinful things that we do and say, that's bad, I shouldn't be doing that, that's true. But if we only operate on that level and never go underneath it and say, what idol is, is giving life to this, is at the root of this, I think we're going to find ourselves not making a lot of progress in our spiritual lives. So if an idol is an ultimate thing, I think that people structure their lives around, things, uh, something or someone that people say, I can't live without this and I'm um, willing to spend tremendous time and energy and money to enthrone this as king in my life. Let me ask you the question, because you're the experts here. I'm not the expert yet. In Nelson, um, we don't have to just talk about this church, but I mean like the broader community. What are, what, in your experience living here, have been, what are the dominant idols of Nelson? What are things that people here, maybe very unconsciously, give their lives to and just say, this is what I live for. What would be examples here in Nelson? Just put your hand up and we'll, we'll tackle a few. Ray? Recreation. Recreation. This, that's a bottom line for me. That's why I moved here. I want to be here. I, this is what, I want the freedom to be able to do that. And recreation. I'm not saying that's why I moved here. I can be able to work and serve the Lord, people. I'm just saying, I, I'm, playing, I'm playing the average Nelsonite. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so yeah, recreation, and, and along with that, kind of a life of leisure, and a life uh, where there's not a lot of demands on me. I don't. I minimize my responsibilities so that I can have lots of space and openness and freedom to explore what I want to explore and do what I want to do and enjoy life. So, kind of recreation and the, the enjoyment of life as an idol, for sure. What would, what would be another one? Someone could think of it. Art. What's that? Okay, so we say art, that is central to my identity, 
being, uh, I'm not just a creative person, but creativity is the thing that I serve. I build my life around it. And, and we certainly see that in this community. There's a lot of people who are massively invested in the art. And, and, and again, that would be a good example where if you go to a lot of people and say, you are no longer able to do that in your life for whatever reason. Some people would crumble. They, they wouldn't know how to define themselves. Their whole world would be turned upside down. Maybe one more. Religion. Religion. Okay, so that's pretty broad, but let's just, uh, let's say go with um, what... Yeah, what I might say be more generalized as customized religion. Customized for me. Um, so I want to see myself as progressive, enlightened, intelligent. Um, here's kind of the horizon of religions. And I pick and choose what I like, uh, what works for me, what fits me. So a self-centered way of understanding and answering ultimate questions. And for a lot of people... That would be the bottom line. That, 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 is, that is their God. Their own constructed God, um, their own constructed religion, um, they're very comfortable saying, yeah, that, that, that is what I serve. And there's lots of things that are in um, um, other priorities that I have in my life, but that is my bottom line. Notice something about idolatry. All those th- th- three things that we mentioned. None of those things... Um, in their essence are necessarily bad things. Art is a good thing. Being able to explore and look at religious options and then decide and make a commitment to something, make a commitment to a certain religious expression, that, that's, that's fundamentally a good thing. Recreation and taking time to enjoy, that, that's a good thing. And so, and this is what I mean by the, by the Bible talks about idolatry in a very complex way. And this is one of the complexities. Idolatry normally, for most people, isn't something really, really, really bad. It's normally something good that's been raised to an ultimate thing. Then instead of God and his priorities, his kingdom come first, I understand everything in light of that and then submission to that. This good thing, which everyone agrees is a good thing, I just sub- I'll switch those two up. And so idolatry is often not a bad thing, although they certainly can be, but it's usually something that seems good. And as the momentum builds, it actually displaces God. One writer says this, anything can serve as an idol, especially the very best things in life. Very good things are even more tempting and it's more insidious for them to become idols. Because for most people, unless you're dealing with a lot of pain or you're in the throes of addiction, if someone says you should build your life around something super negative, you're gonna say, well, no, that's obviously not healthy and good. The way that the idol works its way in is it is something good that we begin to place too much hope and trust in. We begin to give ourselves too much over into that. We begin placing our faith in that thing or in that person to deliver only what God can. So I, I said before, there's, people have spend time and energy on lots of stuff. And you might be sitting here and thinking, okay, but really, recreation, art, uh, kind of 
self-centered religion. Okay, maybe the self-centered religion one is like not as great, but like people are just different. People just prioritize different things. Like what's the big deal? Why would God be so hung up if someone wants to make art their life? Like who cares? Like live and let live. Like don't worry about it. If someone wants to just pursue a life of ease, like why would God care about that? Why would God like call people to repent of that, to turn away from that? It's a good thing. They just value something different than, than we do and maybe that God does. Why is God, and if you read the Old Testament, you'll see this, why is God so on this idolatry thing? In fact, you can't understand the passages in the Old Testament where God talks about himself as a jealous God unless you understand the thing of idolatry because God is like, I want to be the number one thing in your life. I'm not okay with you having this thing. I'm not okay with being an accessory to your life while something else is primary. But what's the big deal? And, And this psalm I mean, the story tells us, the story of Scripture when you read it. But this psalm goes right to the heart of it. The reason why God cares so deeply and is, calls us and warns us again and again against making false idols and pursuing idolatry and being aware of that dynamic in our lives and being aware of the particular idols that call our heart and, and to make sure that those don't take root is because idols snare people. They trap people. Psalm 106 talks about these idols that, that, um, that Israel worshipped in the land of Canaan that became a snare to them. And God, um, narratively speaking, in terms of the whole spectrum of the scripture, one of the things that angers God and frustrates God and brings about God's wrath the strongest is when his image bearers are snared and trapped and oppressed and limited by the power of sin, whether in the form of the nation, a nation like Egypt, who's dehumanizing people, or just in the sinful power of maybe an addictive cycle. And this is a big deal to God. Idolatry is a big deal to God. What are the first two commandments, 10 commandments? What are the first two? You will have no other gods before me. Not the greatest commandment, like, I mean, the Ten Commandments, Old Testament. You will have no other gods before me. I'm number one. I'm center. We can talk about lots of other things. I get the first word. I'm at the center. What's the second one? No idols. They're both a commentary on the same thing. I'm number one. Therefore, if, I, if you have no other gods before me, you, you, you can't make an idol. But the second one it puts it in explicit language. I don't just mean like, oh, make me number one. Like, oh, of course you're number one, God. I mean, you don't have idols. You don't have anything that when it comes to what I call you to do and what this thing is calling you to do, I give. That's not how it works. Life will only work. And remember, those commands are given to Israel. God is teaching them how life works, how they're going to grow into being God's people. The whole thing starts. I'm at the center. You have no idols. Life only works properly when God is at the center and all those other good priorities find their role in your life and in our life in submission to his authority. The other dimensions of life, the other good things in life, they, 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 they settle into their proper place when God is at the center. But when you remove God and when you put something else in the place of God, even a good thing, what you release, what you kind of give permission, what you will begin to start experiencing is your life will slowly begin to move in a self-destructive process. Maybe not initially, 
And we'll talk about why in a second. But it will go there eventually. And God just knows that dynamic. So he's like, don't even, don't even give the idol a foothold. Just don't cast down your idols. Keep me central. How does an idol snare us? Again, some of you might be thinking, this sounds like hyperbole, like over-exaggeration. Like, really, Jeff, honestly? Snagging us like art? Recreation? Come on. Here's how an idol snares you. What every idol does is it, is it makes at least one promise to you, but usually makes an, a number of promises to you, implicitly or explicitly. The idol offers us protection, power, and control. And that's why they're very enticing. Because they seem to be offering it without too much of a catch. They promise to deliver a huge amount of that security and power and control up front, and they make very few demands. Remember the core of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth up front. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And that is the same pattern that all idols follow. All idols essentially say, I can bring this and deliver this into your life. All I ask is incredibly small return. I'm hardly asking for anything at all. And then what happens is the idol works at first. It actually delivers on its promise. Um, if you have ever found yourself or a loved one in the throes of um, any kind of drug or alcohol addiction, you will understand that dynamic very intimately. The, the idol behind um, alcohol or, or drugs is... I can give you freedom from the pain. I can deliver you out of the space that you're in. I can help you manage and control your own emotions or what's happening in the world. Just take this. You know, first hit's free. It's not, not a big deal. And when you take that in, there often is a sense of relief and sometimes euphoria and freedom and deliverance. I didn't have to think about this, my pain, my hurt, for these many hours. I escaped it. It did feel like a salvation. And then we begin to say, hey, this thing, why have people been saying not to like, go down this road? This is great. This works. You know, everyone told me that I shouldn't make girls the center of my world, but now that I got a girl and I'm having sex with her, like, everything's, everything's amazing. It's all, but, see, they were wrong. Because I've experienced something totally different. I've experienced liberation. I've experienced freedom. I'm coming to know myself in, in ways that I couldn't have before. I don't know what people were talking about. God, all these rules. No, get, get out of here. This, this is working. See, all idols do work at first. If you think about the history of those little totems, those little things that people had in their home, why do people have those in their home? Well, at some point, somebody did some serious praying to that little totem and the weather patterns seemed to change, and water came. And it looked like the idol worked. Hey, this thing works. It works if I actually give it enough devotion, if I invest enough time and energy, and in some cases, money into it. They come to be revered. Idols come to be revered in our life because for a season they work, and they work very, very effectively. One writer said, 
we see this dynamic clearly in the case of small-scale personal idolatries known as addictions. So think of, again, alcohol, drugs, pornography, wealth addiction. Uh, every addict knows that the habit initially delivers everything that it promised and more. We'd, you'd be lying to yourself if you said it didn't deliver those first few times. But over time, and this is the long view of idolatry, over time, what all God's false gods do is they slowly begin to stop satisfying those desires. We have the first hit. And the next one, it's good. It just didn't get back up here. And then you fast forward six months and you need more of whatever it is to get back up to that place of ecstasy and salvation and deliverance. And that pattern of having to invest more and more and more and more while getting less and less and less and less is how all addictions form. That's how addictions form. And that's the fundamental trap of every single idol. There's a psychologist named Jeffrey Stanover, and he says, idols always come to demand more and more and more while providing less and less and less until eventually they give you nothing, but they demand everything. All idolatries, here, sorry, we'll go back. Mark, thanks for keeping up with me. I was, I was preaching, so I forgot to do this little clicker thing. Thank you. All idolatries end up in the same place. The text tells us what that place is, and it's a very dark place. Every idol, no matter how innocent it starts, will inevitably ask you to sacrifice that which is most precious to you. Which is what? What was it? Sorry? Pardon? Um, it will ask you to worship it, but when the idol stops uh, giving you, the, the ultimate end of the, of the idol cycle is that I don't say, I'm not giving you anymore unless you give me one more ultimate thing. Do you know what it is? Psalm 106 said it. Not yourself. What's more important to you than yourself? No. I mean, it might be, but culturally, it's your children. Every idle cycle ends with, in order for me to give you what you want, you have to give me your firstborn, you have to give me your child, your children. That's why almost every pagan society practiced some form of child sacrifice. Because the idolatrous cycle was we have to keep showing these gods that we are really serious and that they are at the center. And what way in an ancient world could you ever show a god you were more serious than giving up the f- your future and your family lineage, which is your child? And so entire societies slowly grew into this idea that, of, of course, that's just, that's just normal and acceptable because that's the way the gods work. And if you think that's overstatement to say that all idolatry ends in child sacrifice, if that sounds like hyperbole to you, I want you to think about it, maybe not in the particular context that you're living in, but I want you to think about it writ large as a society. And I'll ask you this question. 
and I don't want, I want you to name names or anything. I just want you to, where have you seen people sacrifice their children on the altar of, I will serve this idol? What would be an example? Absolutely. Alcoholism or drug Absolutely. You might not be literally killing your child, but you are sacrificing their relationship. You are saying, I cannot, will not be the kind of parent that my child needs me to be because I am, too, I am, I am in the throes of addiction here. I'm serving this idol. This thing has become all-consuming to me. Uh, some of you maybe have grown up as the child sacrificed in that system where you never really had a parent or a parent wasn't there the way they should have been because they were serving an idol. What would be an example of maybe, so that would be an example of a very destructive, dark idol where we can maybe see it play out. What would be an example of a good one? What would be an example of, what's that? Oh, so good. That's so insightful, Wendy. Uh, Education. Um, I have a master's. My wife has a PhD. I value education. She values education. We education. We value education as a family. There is, without a doubt, in the last 10 to 15 years, been a huge shift in parents' aspirations for their children. And I think for a lot of parents, and a lot of Christian parents, if you were to say, um, if you were to plant the idea that... um, your child is going to complete high school and then get like a whatever job commensurate with that and never be able to achieve academically, uh, I think there'd be a lot of parents who wouldn't know how to process that. How, what, what, what hope is there for my child if they don't have an education? And like, like a first-rate education, whatever that looks like in your context. What would be the point? Like they're just gonna like work a regular job? Like how could they be happy? How would they? And, And so we invest all this energy serving this idol of education. We will put huge amounts of time, energy, and money to give our kids accumulated advantage. Uh, in, in my neck of the woods, uh, back in Hamilton, there were people who were very concerned, anxious, up at night parents, anxious. I can't sleep at night because their kindergartner wasn't tracking with other kindergartners in terms of shape and color recognition. Anxiety. So there's, we've got to get them extra classes, enrichment, this, that, stuff in the summer going all over, education, education, education. But do you see how ultimately you're destroying, in a sense, your child's life? Because what you're enthroning is the center of your family, likely, what, what the time, energy, and functional devotion of your entire family will go towards is academic achievement. And they will learn very quickly that if they achieve, they're worthy and they matter and they have a future and they have a hope and they can, and if your kids are smart and they can game the system, they'll be awesome. They'll find a place in your family. But kids who won't or who can't uh, or who just don't have... Um, maybe the raw intelligence or discipline needed to excel at whatever level you think they should as a parent, um, they'll get sacrificed in some way. They'll get cut off, they'll get removed, they'll get minimized, they'll get browbeaten, they'll just be, whatever it is, um, they'll, 
they'll, they'll feel you giving up on them, and not just on them, but on their future, because they don't, they don't get it. They're, they're not making the thing that you need to have, right? Recreation, art, sports, there's all kinds of ways that we can play something very good at the center of our lives, and over time, it promises us things. It delivers it, yes, yes, but over time, it begins to extract. And if we're not careful as a society... Um, well, that would be, if we were doing small groups right now, that would be a good question to ask, maybe a good question to talk about it. young adults uh, in, your, in conversations with people. Culturally, what are the idols? What are some other idols that we see writ large in our culture that we say, in order to serve this, we're okay with ch- children being sacrificed over here? We'll kind of turn a blind eye to it because that's the way it has to be if we're going to pursue this as a society. So idols are dangerous things. But everybody in this room has a particular idol or set of idols that call to our hearts and are very, very tempting to us. How do we get out from under idols? How do we free ourselves from idols? Well, first of all, I want to say there's absolutely huge hope for anybody who's in a cycle that what I talked about, whether it's, it's a full-on addiction or if you feel like you're starting to lose control of your life because things were working well and you had your system set up a few years ago and now it just feels like more and more things are being taken from you and your, and your marriage is being pulled apart and your relationship with your kids are being pulled apart and financially there's new stress and spiritually you're kind of become, you're coming undone. There is hope for you. There's a way to get out of the idol's grip. God constantly invites his people into it and we have to be doing it, everybody in this room has to be doing this all the time um, because you either have to be doing it proactively, meaning God is enthroned and I do these things so that the idol doesn't encroach or the idol's enthroned and this is how I get the idol off the throne. The way you get free from the idol, the way you get out of the snare, I think the only way you get out of the snare is through what Thomas Chalmers called an expulsive affection an expulsive affection. Thomas Chalmers is an old school 18th century pastor. He wrote a, um, a sermon called The Power of an Expulsive Affection, and it's very difficult to read. Um, but you have to kind of mine it. Um, and, and one of his great things is that you actually can't, the best way to try and uproot the idol in your life, uproot any sin in your life, is not by starting with, I gotta stop doing that. I'm going to stop doing the bad thing. I'm going to just remove it from my life. I'm going to take it away. I'm doing these bad things or this is beginning to encroach in my life in a way that I don't like. I'm just going to move it out of the way. He says, that tends to not work because when you remove something, you create a vacuum. And it's kind of like Jesus' teaching when he says, you know, you cast the demon out, but then there's more space and then like more come in. He says, "That's, that's kind of human nature. You can fight idols by moving them out of the room but once you shift this idol out, one more comes in. And so you can spend your whole life trying to behavior manage yourself out, out of idolatry, which will never work. And that's kind of like a human-focused, self-centered way of trying to say, I'm going to identify my idol, shame myself, or I've got to stop doing that, and behave my way by not doing that anymore. It'd be, it'd be like getting up in the morning and saying, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to look at that thing on the Internet that I'm not supposed to look at. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to be greedy. I'm not going to whatever. Thomas Chalmers says you actually can't ultimately do that. That won't free you. 
You'll just exchange one set of shackles for another. The way you get free is by cultivating an expulsive affection. Expulsive meaning something that pushes out what is there. And affection meaning love. He says you can't just stop sinning. These are my words, not his, because I don't know if I understand half his words. He says you can't willpower your way out of a cycle of sin and idolatry. You break out by falling in love with something bigger than your idol. That's the way you get out. It's by falling in love with something bigger than your idol that will uproot the idol, and if it's something good, will readjust it into its proper place. He says, the way you fight idolatry is by cultivating a new first love. That's the way you get rid of idolatry. Now maybe, if you go back into Jesus' greatest commandment, you might understand in, in a new way the genius behind it. What's the most important thing we could do? What's the most important command? Jesus could have said, no other gods before me. Do not make idols. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, your entire human faculty. Learn to receive that love, understand that love, reciprocate that love, let that love penetrate your heart and, your, and every dimension. Just love God and then be obedient to him and then, and then love your neighbors yourself. Because I can't even really talk about the first one without talking about the second one. So we're just going to kind of two sides of the same coin this one. Love God, love other people. Jesus has been teaching this principle right from the start. The way you deal and walk into new freedom for anybody, the only way you can dethrone the idols is by falling in love with something greater than the idol. And when you take steps to make and keep Jesus your first love, all those good things can find a new place in your life. But they find their proper place and they find their healthy place. We find satisfaction in our soul that we've been longing for, that we've been designed for, but we would never find by putting our ultimate trust in these other things. And the rest of our life calibrates around this life-giving first love. So if you're not a Christian my pastoral warning to you would be, by nature, you will make something an idol. And my warning would be, and the scripture's warning would be, it doesn't matter what that idol is, it will eventually not deliver what you think it's supposed to deliver in your life, and it will begin to extract things from your life that right now it's not telling you it's going to extract. You are on a, you're on a dangerous road. Idolatry isn't just a problem for God's people. It's just when you put something in the place of God for any human image bearer, because we're all made in, in God's image, you're short-circuiting the way life works. And it will work for a, f a, f a season, and then your life will begin to unravel. And that's, why you, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to become Christian. Because only in Christ, and by having Christ as the king of your life, that you can A, be free from the cycle of idolatry, and have the power and the recalibration of your soul to move into life the way that it was supposed to be. And if you are a Christian and you struggle with idolatry like I do, and there are certain idols, this is why we need to nurture this relationship every day. There's a, there's a real urgency to do this every day. This is where you get your urgency from. Why should I read the Bible every day? I don't feel like praying today, serving, right? Heart, soul, mind, strength, Christian community. I don't know. I kind of get all that stuff. Oh, I understand that you get it. It's not rocket science. The question, though, is are you cultivating an expulsive affection? Because if you're not, and if you're playing fast and loose with those things in your relationship with God, 
what you're doing is you're allowing God to kind of slide off the throne and some, there's a vacuum, something else will take its place and you're gonna find yourself where Israel did in the cycle of Judges, where the cycles get worse and worse and worse and worse. You don't have to live that way. We need to be cultivating our relationship with Jesus. So what steps, you know, this gets very practical, what steps do we all need to take this week to begin displacing the idol's grip in our life, whether it's just starting or full, with Jesus' expulsive affection. And again, you can think through the lens of heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think of those four dimensions. In my relationships with other people, in my prayer worship life, in my engagement with scripture and God's truth, and in the way that I serve and give of my time, energy, and money. What could I do this week to begin loving God, heart, soul, mind, and strength so that this idol can slowly, because in some cases it doesn't happen overnight, but I can begin to remove this idol and the root of God's love can begin to push it up and away and I can find a freedom that I can't find anywhere else. Idols tempt us because they look so promising and empowering, but an idol will always snare you. It will always snare you. God's command, God's commands on the surface look like they're going to snare you. They look narrow. They look restrictive. But you yield to them, you come under their authority, and you actually experience empowerment. You experience freedom. You experience salvation and liberation. As C.S. Lewis said, Christianity looks very small from the outside. But when you go in, you think, holy cow, this is really spacious. This is great. This did not look like this on the outside. This is amazing in here. And the idol is the opposite. It looks great from the outside. And on the inside, it's rot. And it's death. Think about the nature of our God. Think about why God would be so jealous. God doesn't want us sacrificing our children, getting caught in these cycles. The only true God demands Think about the idols. The idol demands so little and promises so much. God is the polar opposite. God demands everything up front. You want to follow me? You take up your cross. You give up your life. God demands everything up front. That's one of the reasons why you know he's not an idol. and He's not going to be a false god. He's straight up with you. Oh yeah, I'm going to take your life. I demand the whole thing because I, I am your creator. But the difference is, as we move in obedience to God, he gives us more and more and more and more and more. When we yield to him, when he's our king, he demands everything and gives very few actually promises up front, but the promises and the blessings explode out as we live under his authority. God is jealous for us to resist idolatry because idolatry involves the giving up of the most vulnerable child, children, individually, collectively. That is abhorrent to God. And God's love shows itself so pure and so powerful and so anti-idolatrous that God says, I demand child sacrifice too. But it won't be your child. I'll pay the price. I'll sacrifice my own child. That's how much I'm willing to give so that you'll never have to do that, so that you can have life, so that you can know my love. 
It's not our firstborn that we're asked to give up. God says, I'll give up mine for a relationship with us. That is the kind of God to place at the center of your life. And so whether you are a Christian, whether you are not, whether you're not sure where you are, my challenge to you is go and begin investigating and worshiping and loving this king and receiving that love, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and learn to be free from the idol's snare. Let's pray. God, would you deliver us from idols? Would you deliver us from idols in our own lives and hearts? Would you make us aware of what those idols are, God? Maybe some of us are living very unconsciously. We've given ultimate allegiance to something in our life that only you should have, and we don't really know what life would look like with you at the center. Would you teach us, God? Would you have mercy on us? Your story in Scripture shows us that time and again when Israel sinned, you didn't say, well, that's it. You just don't get it. Forget it. And you walked away. That, that's not the story. The story is you came back and you redeemed and you saved and you said, I want to get you from out of this snare. Would every person in this room, whether an idol is tempting our heart or whether an idol has overcome our life, would you um, speak uh, through your Holy Spirit truth that everybody here can walk in a new kind of freedom because your love uh, is, the, is the ultimate expulsive affection and it can deal with any idol in any situation that we might find ourselves in, God. Um, love us and save us and deliver us, God. Amen.